You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We talk frequently on The Zeitgeist about German politics and about German history. In this episode, we'll bring those topics together in a conversation about how the past shapes today's politics. My colleague Eric Langenbacher and I spoke with Professor Simona Lessig, the director of the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C. Our subject is the state of Saxony in the southeast of the country, which was a part of East Germany until unification in 1990. It is home to large cities like Dresden and Leipzig and has about 4 million inhabitants, mid-sized for a German state. Now, Saxony is known nowadays for a few things. It has been ruled uninterruptedly for 30 years by the center-right CDU party, and it is the state with the highest level of public support for the far-right AFD party, the so-called Alternative for Germany, which won 27.5% of the votes in last year's state election. It was also the place where the extreme anti-immigrant Pegida movement got its start, and where in 2018, during a demonstration, a group of right-wing extremists attacked and chased foreigners in the city of Chemnitz. But Saxony is more than that. It was the cradle of the peaceful revolution in 1989, when courageous citizens in Leipzig, with their peaceful protests, set an example that spread throughout the country and brought down the sclerotic and oppressive East German state. In the 19th century, it was a stronghold of the labor movement, out of which the Social Democratic Party grew. And of course, it was the home of Martin Luther, who just over 500 years ago began the Protestant Reformation in Saxony. Saxony has been ahead of its time and brought forth movements that had an impact well beyond its borders throughout history. What explains that history and what effect does it have today? Join us for our discussion with Professor Simona Lessig, a renowned scholar of 19th and 20th century history. Well, let me welcome uh, all of our listeners to this episode of the Zeitgeist, the AICGS podcast. Uh, I'm Jeff Rathke, and I am here today with senior fellow and uh, director of the AICGS program on society, culture, and politics, uh, Dr. Eric Langenbacher. And we have as a special guest today, the director of the German Historical Institute uh, office in Washington, D.C., um, Simona Lessig. Uh, we are really delighted to have you with us. And the, the reason that we wanted to talk to you is, uh, you know, we've been struck by some of the work you've done uh, over the past year that looks into the history of one particular part of Germany, that is uh, the state of Saxony, and that uh, tries to identify some of the ways in which Saxony is a laboratory uh, or perhaps an early indicator of trends in German politics and society. Uh, that I think we both found intriguing, and so we're really uh, pleased to have you with us today. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. So if I could start off um, maybe just by asking um, uh, to talk about the ways in which we see in modern times the manifestations of uh, this, this deep history uh, that you have been working on. In particular, you talk about the connections um, of, of Saxony nowadays to the, the, the rise of the far-right uh, alternative for Germany party. But you point out that uh, Saxony has stood out in the past in, in many ways. 
Christians. Um, so how do you see that connection as a historian between the modern manifestations and, uh, and the, the history that uh, has been, you know, uh, goes back centuries in Saxony's case? Yeah, thank you for the question. I mean, before the Saxon state elections last summer, the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung asked me a similar question, and their question was whether there was a historical grammar of um, Saxony and uh, whether one could deduce explanations for the early strength of right-wing and populist movements in Saxony from uh, the history of the state of uh, Saxony. And then and now I pointed out that long historical lines uh, and the historically based regional mentalities that go with them cannot explain current developments or only to a very limited extent. Uh, if at all, uh, then one must take a closer look at recent history and especially uh, for history, um, for, for Saxony. And um, I mean, to the final phase of the GDR and the history of transformations. Uh, since 1989. I mean, to be sure, as a historian, I always advocate uh, the historical reflection of current developments, uh, but how harmful it can be to draw all too direct a line from history to the present uh, is something the Social Democrats had to experience painfully during uh, the transformation period in Eastern Germany. In Saxony, it firmly believed that the tra tradition of the Red Kingdom was still alive. And against this background, and to clearly distinguish uh, itself from any German dictatorship, it strictly refused to accept former members of the um, Communist Party into its ranks. And both of these, as the party now knows, uh, were mistaken in many respects. The SPD was wrong on both counts. It overestimated the continuity of historical milieus as much as it overestimated the will of the GDR population to distance itself rigidly from the GDR. And um, I think both misconceptions contributed not only to the CDU's uh, ability to achieve a two-third majority in the first three elections, uh, but also to its ability to defend it for a very long time, and then to really use uh, history and memory uh, as a political tool and uh, to make it appealing. So this regional identity, to create a regional identity rooted in uh, history, to create a specific regional uh, identity which would work as a tool uh, to help in uh, the transformation uh, from the GDR to um, the more liberal or neoliberal circumstances uh, the East Germans had to cope with. So um, if I could just jump in for a second, um, sure. I'd like to uh, take the conversation in a, li a little bit more of a comparative uh, dimension for a second. 
because I think what you just said is really quite fascinating. And I mean, there's a whole literature, there's a whole discourse now on mistakes that were made after 1989, 1990, um, that things could have been done differently and that we would have a different outcome today, perhaps without a uh, far-right party getting a quarter or even a third of the vote in certain regions of Eastern Germany. And, and of course, we know it's not just Saxony, but the yep. AFD is pretty strong in um, Thuringia, uh, in Brandenburg, and elsewhere. But I wanted to talk a little bit about other um, Central and East European countries for a second, and also their processes of transformation, because it's really fascinating. You just mentioned that one of the issues, if not mistakes, that the SPD made, and others for that matter, is that they, 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 wouldn't, they wouldn't accept former Communist Party members, well, Socialist Unity Party members mm -hmm. in Eastern Germany. And what's fascinating is that if you look at Poland, for instance, Poland had a very different kind of transition to the democracy. It was more negotiated. And uh, the former Communist Party was um, still um, in existence. And in fact, they renamed themselves and even governed for a while in the 90s and the early 2000s. And Poland also had a very different kind of um, privatization experience as well. And I bring all this up because, you know, Poland has a pretty strong um, right populist, if not far right uh, party. Hungary does. It's existent in uh, the Czech Republic. Yet all these countries had very different experiences with what they did with former communists. Yet they still have a similar outcome, which is a high, high level of support for kind of like right radical parties. So I don't know, why do you think that is? Why do you think that these right populist parties are, are so strong throughout the region, including in Eastern Germany, um, despite very different transition processes and very different treatment of people who uh, were members of communist parties before 1989 or 1990? Very interesting question, and uh, I think uh, you're more an expert in this regard than I am as a historian. <laughs> uh, so I think from what I could observe is, uh, first of all, I mean, in Poland or Hungary, uh, the right-wing populist parties are much stronger uh, than in East Germany. So even in uh, Saxony, where they uh, alternative to Germany, the AFD became an important factor in uh, the political landscape early on. Three quarters of voters vote for parties to the left of the AFD. Yeah. Let, let's not forget about that. So, but what all post-communist parties, but not only the post-communist parties, um, to be sure, uh, what they share is a strengthening of nationalism, the feeling of being a second-class citizen and i mean you have that in other countries in other democratic countries countries as well that a large part of the population feels second-class citizen and uh so in 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 uh eastern europe um i think uh this is directed towards the European Union, so they feel second class within the European Union. In East Germany, it was many people felt second class and not being understood with their biographies uh, within uh, Germany. So um, 
this feeling, um, I think they share in one way or another. And uh, also the feeling for not being really respected for one's own experiences and for what one has achieved, um, especially in the struggle with hegemonic elites. But they probably also, or let, let me add, uh, so I think people who are underprivileged or who have the collective feeling that they are not being taken seriously uh, with their experiences. Um, I think they will always take kind of revenge in, in democracies sooner or later. And I mean, this, this, as we can see now, also true for the second or even third generation. This is a kind of family memory that is uh, created and which yeah. in Eastern Europe uh, it led to the fact that people even refused to appreciate the many subsidies they received uh, for sure and so respect and dignity can neither be bought nor paid for that was their feeling and um, so I mean, injuries associated with uh, this often seem longer and uh, deeper, go longer and, and deeper than differences in living standards, I think. And that might be one connection between uh, East Germany and the East European states. Another one could be the very ambivalent uh, view uh, our relationship uh, with the state. So on the one hand, all these people that were raised and socialized in um, communist states, uh, they experienced a basic social security system and they expected that the state will provide a, a basic social security for them on the one hand and on the other hand, uh, they all lived, or many of them lived, at a certain distance from the state, and th there was a widespread, um, yeah, uh, distrust and a um, uh, thinking in dichotomies of uh, those up there and we down here, and uh, so I think that that is still in one way or the other you can feel it it's uh, still there uh, what really surprises me as someone who was also raised in the GDR uh, is uh, the rampant affinity to Russia in, in uh, East Germany so I have no explanation for that so I, I don't know what would you think um, because the, the Soviets, that is certain, were quite unlike the Americans in the West. Uh, I mean, they had to be tolerated, but they were certainly not respected and certainly not popular in uh, the GDR. And uh, they, they were definitely not popular in Poland. And so I, I can't really explain it, um, but you 
probably have an explanation for that phenomenon. <laughs> I think that's a, I think that's a great insight because I do also think it's very bizarre that so many Eastern Germans, um, you know, hold Russia in such high regard these days. Um, I think there's a variety of reasons. I mean, first and foremost, we can't overlook the effectiveness of Russian propaganda, right? You know, Sputnik, RT. I mean, they're constantly engaging in shenanigans and they've decided to focus on Eastern Germany in particular. So if you remember a couple of years ago, there was that it, like literal fake news story about the young girl who was supposedly abducted and they blamed immigrants and they really um, got a lot of you know, outrage over that and it was a complete fake news story, right? So, um, you know, first of all, there's that. Secondly, I mean, if there's one thing you can say about Vladimir Putin is that he is quite clever about a variety of things. And, you know, from one perspective, maybe what the Russians have done is they've been able to differentiate themselves from the Soviet Union, right? And they could, they could even say, you know, just like you, we were victimized by, you know, the Communist Party, by this kind of, this false Soviet kind of vision or project. And so, you know, maybe that kind of sense of victimization is something that um, resonates with people in Eastern Germany and elsewhere in Eastern Europe, because I think Viktor Orban in Hungary is also, um, you know, quite the supporter, right? And the other, because, you know, from that perspective, I think it's really fascinating. We've been thinking a lot about this in recent days and weeks here in Washington, D.C., but, you know, there's always been um, a, a complex relationship that Germans, I think both in East and West, have had towards the United States, right? And of course, uh, anti-Americanism was one of the pillars of kind of like communist party ideology, right? So I think that one might, one might say that one of the legacies of Eastern, um, of East Germany is that they prime the population to be at least skeptical, if not very critical towards the United States. And the United States is of course the same power as it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. There's been no change like in Russia. You see what I mean? So, mm -hmm. uh, like the Russians, the Russians have plausible deniability and can differentiate themselves from the bad Soviets, but we're still still the same Americans. And I think the the Russians today are exploiting that um, in certain segments of the population. If if uh, that's that's an interesting point, and it's an interesting question. I think one thing that strikes me um, as someone who has you know worked as a diplomat in Germany, uh, both on internal affairs but also foreign affairs. Uh, and also spent uh, a lot of time in Russia, is that I think for, you know, for, as you were describing um, uh, earlier, the, the ways in which, you know, East Germany was subsumed um, into the, the Federal Republic of Germany, um, that, uh, that GD, former GDR citizens uh, often felt their experiences and their knowledge were uh, not respected and not valued. Um, if you think about this in foreign policy terms, um, you know, the East, East Germans did not have, they were not steeped in the culture of the transatlantic relationship um, and even of the broader European Union. So if you, if you think about, you know, how, how one as maybe an ambitious um, East German leader could uh, assert a, uh, a right to speak out about an issue of importance for Germany nationally, uh, where can you look? Well, you can look to the relationship with Russia, which is an area where you can certainly say that in terms of language knowledge and, 
and at least experience. Um, there was some comparative advantage. And it is one of those few grounds in international relations where an East German can say, uh, hey, wait a minute, we know something here that you West Germans don't know. Mm -hmm. And so let us, you need to respect our voice. I think in some ways you see a little bit of that with the, the role that um, former SPD leader Matthias Platzek, also former minister president of Brandenburg, uh, has tried to play uh, as the, the head of the, uh, I'm forgetting the precise name, but the German-Russian Cultural Forum. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and indeed for the Social Democratic Party, uh, which itself is trying to find ways to reconnect with its own past, and especially the, the uh, history of detente, which has been, you know, um, uh, lionized uh, in, in German popular culture. Uh, I think this, this is a way for, for East Germans kind of to, uh, to assert some kind of, uh, you know, um, a voice. So Jeff, if I can just pick up on one of the points that you made. Uh, you talked about how Eastern Germans weren't socialized or steeped in kind of this, uh, this culture of transatlanticism or the, uh, the importance of the European project, just because obviously they weren't, they weren't part of the West. But what I, what I would like to um, uh, get Simon, Simona to weigh in on is, you know, what are the explanations that, that I've heard for why um, the far right is more resonant in Eastern Germany today? is that Eastern Germans didn't have the same experiences or socialization with coming to terms with the past, right? That, that, that Western Germans had during the entire um, uh, Cold War period. And so kind of like insufficient confrontation with the crimes of the Nazis, the experiences during the Nazi period and World War II is one explanation why the culture of memory, which should kind of protect Germans from kind of like a right-wing xenophobic vi virus, why that is, you know, less operative in Eastern Germany. Do you think there's some truth to that? I think there is some truth to that, definitely. And I mean, uh, as I said, uh, I attended school in uh, Eastern Germany in Thuringia. And so I learned about uh, Nazi Germany. And of course, there was this official ideology of anti-fascism. Um, and I learned about the Holocaust, but it, it was uh, very streamlined, of course, and from this point of view, you're absolutely right. But I think there is another point we have to make or to take into account. Um, I mean, democratizing uh, the Federal Republic, that was also a longer process. Uh, so the West Germans, they were not... Uh, Democrats immediately after uh, the Second World War uh, was over. So it, it, it took quite a while and uh, it certainly helped uh, that uh, they had uh, allies from democratic countries um, and they were integrated into uh, the West. And, uh, but I also think it helped that uh, when they turned into Democrats, uh, that happened during the time when they had the opportunity to also socially advance. It was the miracle years. So democratization of uh, the West German society and advancing socially 
that went hand in hand. So, uh, and in East Germany, uh, so after two very different dictatorships, but after two um, um, generations or even three generations that lived in, let's say, authoritarian circumstances, um, when it, they were expected to turn into wholehearted Democrats immediately, that happened. Uh, in a time uh, when their whole life went upside down and uh, when they really had to struggle to survive. Um, there was high unemployment. The, the Eastern, East Germans, they had never learned to cope with unemployment. That was a totally, totally new phenomenon to them. And so I think we, we have uh, to take that into account as well. That's actually an excellent point. So from one perspective, you know, one could say that it's been 30 years since uh, German reunification this year. And if we, if we counted 30 years after the imposition of democracy in West Germany in the federal public, that would take it to 1979. And what's also kind of fascinating is that uh, in, in Western Germany, it was really only in the mid-1980s, especially around the 40th anniversary of sure. the end of the war, that uh, a real kind of deeper coming to terms with the past and a, a kind of a consideration of how kind of historical consciousness relates to support for democracy and national identity. So I think that's a good point. So in other words, like sometimes these processes take time and maybe there just hasn't been enough time in Eastern Germany for, um, for these processes to kind of take hold yet. You know, but the, the other thing that's interesting too, because I, I really love these kind of historical parallels, but there also are a few differences. And you know, one of the, one of the other realities in Eastern Germany after reunification is how many people have left, right? Um, I know if you look at the overall kind of demographics, uh, you can see just how um, severely affected many areas were, especially smaller towns and, and rural areas. Some of the cities like Dresden and Leipzig are doing just fine, but you know, it's a real problem. And I think that's kind of interesting because a lot of the people who have left, and they've been um, uh, majority women, uh, as I'm sure you, you, you know, but these are, you know, the, the, how would I put it? The movers, the shakers, you know, the people yeah. with, with drive, with like innovative energy. I mean, they probably would have been the people to have pushed local communities or others to, I don't know, think more about, um, you know, issues of the past, issues of the present, issues of democracy. But I, I did want to um, mention one, or, one more thing. Um, so you've also written quite a bit about um, Saxon identity that one of the things that the local leaders or the regional leaders decided to do after 1990 was to really invest in this kind of regional identity, right? The, the Saxon identity one more time. And I mean, I, people have convinced me and you know, I've spent quite a bit of time in Saxony myself that it seems to have been really successful. And if I were to think of, you know, regions of Germany today with a strong identity, it would be Bavaria and Saxony. So, Absolutely. You know, yeah, I agree. so very successful, but I wonder how that, um, how that identity project relates to the current kind of political trends. And again, oh, yeah. you're, you're very right to point out that we shouldn't overstate the, the, 
support for the AFD, but you know, it, it still is there. So is there a connection between the investment in this regional identity and support for the AFD today? Sure. There, there is. This is one of my arguments. There is a connection. Uh, but let me first come back to what you said uh, regarding the demographic factor, because I think you made a very important uh, point there. It plays an important role. And so many well-qualified East Germans felt the pressure to move to where the job were uh, and uh, where they find new opportunities for their life. And so this may have increased skepticism, especially towards Western elites as well, uh, who promised flourishing landscapes. And for instance, because we talk so much about Saxony, Silicon Saxony. Yeah. And uh, so, but in the end, I mean, Dresden, you mentioned that, is very successful. Um, but uh, beyond Dresden and probably Leipzig, uh, it brought massive unemployment and uh, the feeling of a loss of homeland for many regions. And um, so there has been a slight return migration, but this does not change the fact that most of these German regions are still only suppliers for the major industries in the West uh, or as economists call it, uh, Germany's China. And so um, there, there is, so that goes together with a certain elite skepticism. So after 1989, and you know that, uh, many top executives went to the East and so they still occupy many important uh, positions. And uh, for instance, not a single acting university president um, has uh, East German, an East German background. And um, so recently an acquaintance told me that she knows the president of the tax office in my hometown in Thuringia. And uh, from his stories, uh, she knew how badly off the city was, which in 1989 still had more than 50,000 inhabitants and uh, has today only a little more than 30,000. Uh, so this is the demographic factor. And he uh, said, thank God, uh, he would soon retire and then be able to move back to his West German hometown. Uh, and so East Germans have such experience, um, experiences reminiscent of colonialism all the time and have had them for many, many years now. And uh, so the elites come, take the good positions in the East, and then they uh, go back. They don't develop any uh, relationship and uh, to to the East. And I mean, to be not misunderstood, that uh, may be an explanation, but it is of course not an excuse for xenophobia. Uh, but that brings me to your other question. I mean, could um, Biedenkopf? Uh, he immediately understood uh, how important it is to take uh, the East Germans seriously, to do what you just said about the Russians, to distance on the one hand uh, themselves from the communist past, but on the other hand to revoke a, uh, um, a, a past that goes 
beyond uh, the, the, the communist, uh, the, the history of the communist state, and goes back to uh, what is really worth to be preserved, as uh, Biedenkopf said it. And I mean, he, he just had a, a very good feeling for what was going on in this period of transition. And it was not, it, it would be uh, to, black and white a picture, if we would say it, it was just a policy uh, tool of Biedenkopf. It, it was really, it came up during uh, the demonstrations when people in the last period of the DDR went to the streets. You could watch green and white flags. So there was this kind of regional identity or even Saxon patriotism coming up. And he just got it and he realized how powerful uh, this identity project could be. And uh, he, he made use of it in a very interesting uh, way. Um, I, I mean, he understood, I think, that it was, um, yeah, there, there was an affirmative and at the same time, an emancipative, is that the correct pronunciation? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, potential of history. And so, and Saxony, um, I mean, it, it was relatively easy because it was the only East German, uh, the only one of the East German lender that really had a kind of coherent history. I mean, Brandenburg, this history was nothing one could be proud of, right? It was, was a right. history of militarism and, and aggression and uh, all the other German, uh, East German states they didn't have a long history, but Saxony had. And uh, so, and where it didn't have this history, it was constructed. And uh, so uh, they, they were told that uh, Saxony had gained new international recognition after every historical defeat because it had concentrated on its actual strength art and culture, trade, industry, and science. And uh, so it, it was really also meant to be a resource for shaping the future in this uh, period of, trans of rapid transformation. So does anybody have any final thoughts? <laughs> well, if, if I could just uh, observe, you know, the, uh, Simona, what you were just saying about uh, Saxony and the construction or the, the, the reconstruction of a strong regional identity uh, is, is particularly fascinating because um, the, the, the engineer of that uh, process, the architect, Kurt Biedenkopf himself was a transplant from, uh, from Western Germany. He'd been a successful politician um, in the Federal Republic before he came to Saxony. So, so there are multiple layers of, uh, of irony and, uh, and significance that, uh, th that this, what we sometimes see as a uniquely um, East German phenomenon, and especially in Saxony, um, uh, also was uh, promoted and, uh, you know, by, a, by a, a prominent West German, um, who was, as you uh, say, and I agree, extremely successful in his project of of uh, of of recreating uh, that 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 Saxon uh, Saxon identity, and I think it's also a fascinating point the, the the degree to which 
the strength of regional identity, which I think people who have uh, people who studied the, uh, the the Federal Republic during the Cold War division of Germany um, uh, always recognized the significance of regional variations uh, and incorporated them uh, in in their uh, policies in some cases toward uh, toward Germany. Uh, to, to see that those also have a, um, a potential downside. Um, if people feel their, their needs, their desires, and their core interests are not being taken seriously uh, by their state leadership or their national leadership, so that, so that those, that particularism also carries the seeds um, of, uh, of of political problems if uh, if they are uh, if they are unaddressed, um, and so I think those are uh, you know, all really important things for uh, for people who study Germany to be reflecting on uh, now, and that will certainly certainly be with us, um, and especially as we look ahead to 2021 and a uh, a German uh, national election. Uh, that will uh, that will be uh, uh, very yeah. I, I would probably add one um, one point that brings us also a full circle. Uh, I mean, uh, you mentioned Kurt Biedenkopf uh, and and pointed to the fact that he was a transplant from the West, which is correct, but with, with a very good sensitivity for what was going on in the East, and uh, he even applied for East German citizenship. Um, before the GDR was gone officially, <laughs> so he did that, and yeah. uh, and he stayed, uh, or uh, to say he came back to Dresden. So he he is still living and he still lives in in Dresden. Um, so this is a difference to a couple of other elites that went back soon after their job was done. Uh, but I mean, it, it also reminds me that we should not forget that when we talk about uh, the right-wing parties and movements like the Pegida and so um, having uh, a strong foothold in uh, the Neue Bundesländer and um, so first in, in Saxony, that many of the party leaders uh, come from the West. So it's, it, it resonates for, uh, in, in mm -hmm. uh, Eastern Germany for the reasons we were just discussing. But uh, many of uh, the leaders of the AFD, uh, like Höcke, uh, they're not East Germans. And so in a way, they really make use of experiences they themselves never had. And yeah. uh, we should not forget about that. And, and uh, I, I think that's a, that's a, a really important uh, point. And uh, it reminds me as well that in your, in your home state of, of Thuringia, the minister president who is from the left party and who has been quite uh, successful was uh, just reelected, Bodo Ramelow, is also a West German. Um, yes, so it's also, it's also not a it's not a phenomenon only of uh, of the the right uh, uh, yeah. side of the political spectrum. So, um, well, uh, this has been a terrific uh, conversation. Uh, I want to thank uh, Professor Simona Lessig for uh, for joining us on this edition of the Zeitgeist uh, and for a look at history and how it affects um, the the current political and social realities uh, in Germany and uh, giving us lots to think about. And uh, we look forward to uh, keeping in touch and, uh, and appreciate your, your time and for joining us today. 
Yes, thank you very much for having me. It was a very interesting experience. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.